This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Money in Service of Nature with Eric Smith. This week, we're delving into the world of finance and asking whether it's possible to support the life worlds of other species with some of the very same tools that have caused them harm. I'm interested in this topic because parallel to this podcast, I invest financial capital in projects that help to regenerate nature. And in that work, I quite often encounter tensions and philosophical quandaries, both in myself and in conversations with my peers. And so I'd like to break those down a little bit to kind of get a lay of the land, if you will. As a disclaimer, these are views that I hold today, and I'm constantly refreshing them, challenging them, and updating them. So this is far from being a comprehensive or or final perspective on these subjects, and I definitely welcome a discussion. On one hand, it's important to acknowledge, as many ecologists and economists do, that nature and natural systems and the trillions of processes that enable life will never be fully uh, captured and priced by markets. It's simply too complex. And if you think about it, nature's value is infinite or trends towards infinity because it underpins everything, literally everything, that makes our human economy possible. And so it's almost impossible to fully capture that in a, a risk assessment or in a you know biodiversity credit because something will always slip away or flutter away beyond the realms of, of what can be pinned down by a number or metric. And a number or metric also won't tell us about the touch of rough bark under our fingertips or the flutter of a beetle's wing. It's not the role of capital to make us appreciate or love nature more. And so we should be very careful of selling nature in order to save it. And just a final point on this as a word of caution, because money is fungible, which means you can you know, trade one for one, it effaces a lot of distinctions and can trigger the further commodification and abstraction of nature. So something like carbon offsets or uh, cap and trade systems or credits can be called irreconcilable with indigenous or animist worldviews that quite rightly hold every expression of life as irreplaceable. However, finance can be used on behalf of nature, and there are brilliant, brilliant ideas and sincere people out there who are pushing at the boundaries of the possible. You can look at the maturing industry of biodiversity markets, which do attempt to move beyond single metrics like carbon, or other approaches like debt for nature swaps or blue bonds, true cost accounting, payments for ecosystem services, and even very funky things like DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, 
where nature can own itself. So I've uploaded resources and readings on the Life World's website for people who want to dig into the kinds of approaches that I think are, are pretty cool in this finance for nature space. And perhaps then the conversation is more about finding the right balance of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say, and constantly checking that markets aren't getting in the way of the worldview that does restore the relationship with other life. With that said, let's hear from our guest. Eric Smith and I were both in Mexico for a climate investing conference and recorded this episode with beachside sand crumbling in our toes. Eric has spent his career working at the intersection of economics and nature, and most recently he was the director of the venture capital vehicle Neglected Climate Opportunities at the Grantham Environmental Trust. In that role, he co-led over 40 direct investments in startups across all stages that can remove carbon and GHG, greenhouse gases, at scale. He was previously with SJF Ventures and BlackRock, also working on climate finance, and he's currently the founder and CEO of Edacious, a company that's working to connect the dots between soil and human health. As always, I'm your host, Alexa Fermanish, and you're listening to Life Worlds. Eric, hi. <laughs> How are you doing? Good, good, Alexa. How are you? Good. You are my first real life. Life Worlds episode. I can't believe it that I'm actually speaking to someone across the table from me. This is absolutely delightful. I can't wait to have an in-person conversation. Wow. I'm really grateful to be here with you uh, to have this conversation. Sorry, before we get into the, the main part of our conversation, share a little bit about the work that you do in the world, because I think for, for many people, ecological investing, climate investing can feel quite abstract. So just describe the the roles that you've taken and the kinds of companies that you've looked at and funded, and then we'll get more granularly into how we use finance on behalf of other forms of life. So I work for a philanthropist. Uh, I work for someone who has um, made quite a bit of money and decided to use that money for charitable purposes. And his name is Jeremy Grantham, and he's someone that I admire and respect to the utmost degree, and, and someone that has really shaped a lot of my, my thinking and, and, and the way that I've been out uh, interacting with the world as an investor. So we at the uh, Grantham Foundation and the Grantham Environmental Trust, we are mission aligned. So everything from the way we manage our principal, uh, the capital, the endowment, all the way to our grant making, we think holistically about using that capital for systemic change. And our focus is primarily on, on global environmental change, and we define that as climate change. And so the bulk of our funding, the bulk of our investments, our time, our thinking, our interactions are all asking the big question of um, how do we preserve the planet's current ecological state in order to preserve society as we know it. And so that lens pulled together a really fantastic group of people. Those people, uh, my team, are what I would say environmentalists first. We've all come from a background of forestry, biology, conservation, conservation finance, and had many on the ground experiences in working with natural systems that allowed us to build an investment strategy that was much more holistic in the way we approach the world. 
So I think that foundation of experience of being environmentalists first and being grounded practitioners in the field of conservation really changed the lens of our investment strategy. And just to set some language, investing, when we say that, we, we, we use that interchangeably between equity investing, so making investments in early stage startups, and grant investing. When we grant capital, that's an investment in a concept, an idea, an organization. And many groups will use these terms very differently. But just for today's conversation, I think it's important to level set around that frame. Because you frame this in the context of, you know, we were environmentalists first. How has that affected your investment decisions and the kinds of things that you guys would look at that maybe other more traditional investors wouldn't recognize? I think when we tried to carve out our strategy and, and put ourselves in a position to be catalytic, we had to ask ourselves, where, where are we going to be additional in this ecosystem of investments? And on the grant side, a lot of that tends to be being early with new ideas. It tends to be being first checks and, and really helping things to get off the ground uh, if we think that they're big, powerful ideas. Um, since I have been leading our uh, direct equity investments program, a large part of the lens today will be around that conversation. But how we approach that strategically is we ask ourselves, why does this matter? That's the first section in our investment memo that goes to our team and our principals. And we, we discuss why is this a transformational company, a transformational idea, a transformational technology? Why is it going to make the planet a better place? Uh, and, and again, preserving our ecological state or um, returning to a prior ecological state. So that first set of lens of, of why does this matter you have to be able to answer that question in two to three paragraphs very succinctly and explain to someone, if this succeeds, this will happen. And I think, Alexa, the large part of this conversation is going to today is going to be what happens, right? And how do we build frameworks for deciding whether or not that will actually happen, given that we're investing something ex ante before the idea is fully fleshed out, before the technology is really developed. So that's the primary lens by which we operate as a catalytic impact investor, right? Um, we're not just investing in a thematic area like climate tech. We're saying we want to help de-risk these technologies. We want to attract more entrepreneurs, more capital, more ideas to the sector. And if we can increase the pool, increase the the opportunity set, that's 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 what matters for us. So maybe you could give two to three examples of those if X succeeds, then this would happen in the frame, especially of the the environmentalist lens that you're giving this. I think I'd go back a second to to a few things in my in my um past that really helped to um give me the, the, the foundational skills and frameworks for how I became an investor. One of those uh, things was I was a, an auditor. I was a uh, working for a third-party group that went out and certified natural resource operations for sustainable management. The program that I was managing was under the auspices of the Forest Stewardship Council, which many of us are familiar with. It kind of sits in the background at this point, but we may have seen it on paper products or building materials or you know, cardboard, but the basis of the FSC is, is a fascinating story. And many 
don't understand the nuances and complexities that went into building a certification framework. And so real quickly, FSC, the Forest Stewardship Council, was designed to basically stop, halt, reverse tropical deforestation. I think it's very clear they haven't succeeded in that, but have they improved the sustainable natural resource management of forest systems globally? Yes, to a degree. But the interesting part of that is basically what are the principles of the standard. And so there are 10 principles, and they cover everything from indigenous communities, local stakeholders, the the workers in those systems, the sustainable harvest and extraction of those resources, and, and the list goes on. But that framework for how you enter into a forest management unit with an operator and assess whether or not that is being sustainably managed or regeneratively managed. And that's that's how I began my career in forestry is because, you know, it's you look at how much biomass is growing. You look at that at a forest level and you decide what level you can extract so that the forest is growing over time as opposed to uh, taking more than 50 percent of what's being grown. So that principle, which is the fifth principle of that standard, really is foundational and became foundational to sustainability certification in many other fields. And one of those fields is impact investing. And so I took that experience in in basically auditing and certifying natural resources, and I brought that over to the investment world and said, how do we apply these same lenses to our investment decisions? How do we ensure that the natural resource extraction, the, the, the stakeholders, the community groups, the groups that are involved in the, in the business or technology, how are they winning or losing as a result of this investment? And again, just want to clarify, this is all very speculative. We're doing a lot of thought exercises. This is more art than science and really sitting down with a holistic framework to guide decision-making when you're investing in early stage ideas. But that lens When you look at an investment and you ask, who's winning? Who's going to lose? Is nature going to win or lose as a result of this investment? I think it's those frameworks that allow us to really make uh, informed decisions regarding where we allocate our time and capital. That question, is nature going to win or lose? So as you know, because this is how we originally met, um, one of my activities is also investing, um, similarly to yourself, in, in ecosystems and, and nature and her ability to regenerate. With Ground Effect, we have on our website this animist thesis, which is basically a form of cognition and an embodied practice of relating to other forms of life. And we'll get to language later in our conversation because I think it's a really important one. But the question that we have on our website is what does nature value How do we exchange places with ecosystems in order to know what they want, which is always a very challenging exercise, especially if you don't know the ecosystem well, if you're not living in that country and someone's sending you a deck of an agriculture investment or forestry investment, and you're like, I don't know what that forest wants. I haven't spent time with it. So when you look at that question, is nature going to win or lose here? How do you put yourself in the shoes of the ecosystem um, and how do you begin to determine an answer to that question. I love that. Um, so going back to this concept of being environmentalists first, you know, having spent time on the ground 
in my personal life and my professional life in natural resource operations, you, you learn, you build experience, right? You understand what looks right, what looks wrong. Uh, luckily, I, I have a technical degree in forestry to back that up and say I do understand these concepts both from an academic and from an on-the-ground experience level. And that, that's true 100% for my team. They also bring those backgrounds as well. So we have the experience that we've been on the ground and we can confidently arrive to conclusions as to whether or not something is regenerative, sustainable, or extractive. And that part of our investment strategy and my personal philosophy is you have to be on the ground to do that. You have to be sitting alongside the stakeholders. You got to be sitting alongside the team. You got to be sitting alongside anyone that's involved with the operation and put your hands on it and feel it and see it and, and talk to them about what they're doing and what their vision is and you know what are the pros and cons. And part of that process is talking to nature because you're out there with those entrepreneurs in those places feeling the results, uh, the impact of their technology on the world as we know it. Now, I, you know, I tend to be more of a realist in the sense that we are in the Anthropocene. Our relationship with nature uh, needs, needs to improve. But we are going to have extractive economies. The question is moving from extractive economies to regenerative economies and doing it in such a way that replenishes and restores the health and vitality of nature. That's where we're at. We have to accept that and we have to move forward so that we build, again, holistic businesses and technologies that can do and enable that regeneration at scale. So when I get on the ground, part of it is intuition because, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years. I know what, what feels right and what doesn't feel right. Um, but for others, you have, to, you have to get on the ground and have those experiences and, and, and be on site to know whether or not this looks and feels right and, and ask questions. And that's what, you know, I, that's what I love about you, Alexa. You're just so good at asking questions. And that's what our job is as investors. And being an auditor trained me to be a good investor, right? Because I have lots of questions. I can't stop asking questions. And, and that's what you have to do to, to put yourself in nature's shoes is saying, does, is this helping me or is this hurting me? I think that my parents might not agree with you that it's such a good thing that I asked so many questions. <laughs> I must have been the most obnoxious child. I'm sorry, mom and dad. <laughs> you said before, how do you talk to nature? You're in, the, you're in the forest, you're in the landscape, you're on the ground, you can speak to the human stakeholders. And you said this interesting thing, like you said, I talk to nature. So I don't think they teach you how to talk to nature uh, in a forestry degree. We've had some foresters come on the podcast and they have things to say about forestry and institutions. And I think that science, certain forms of science can really embed you in an ecosystem. And But how have your degrees in science been thrown out the window in a certain situation where you've been there and you're like, actually, the land, this nature wants something different. And none of my existing frameworks are helping me. But I just know, I know that this is what this land wants. Has that happened to you in your career? I, I think that's been the you've summarized my tension in, in agriculture, right? I mean, like agriculture is just so difficult. I mean, look at the situation in, in Ukraine. I mean, I, I thought personally we were at a point where we had a surplus of calories that we were producing successfully as a society. Uh, 
uh, one small war has completely disrupted that equation. And there are people that are going to starve globally as a result of this crisis because we've taken, you know, five to 10 percent of wheat and corn out of production. And that I mean, that's real. I'll bring this back to forestry. But this optimization question, like we're not going to get rid of modern day industrial farming as it exists today. There's just too many people that need to be fed. And that's where that tension exists. When I see that practice like that, like nature does not want this form of agriculture. She, she clearly wants something else. And, and luckily, we've both seen the potential of regenerative agriculture to unlock that. And so here's the tension, Alexa, that I, that I wrestle with. Um, one, of the, one of the most interesting concepts that I learned in forestry was, this, again, this question of optimization. So let's say you have a unit. And logic in certification world would say you certify that unit and you practice the same sustainable management practices uniformly across that unit. What would a unit be like? A tree? Uh, A stand, multiple stands, um, a watershed, a spatial area. Now, math and science tells us you can optimize the outputs on that unit by um, segregating the unit in different ways. So let's say 40% is dedicated to conservation and 60% is dedicated to, you know, a a pretty rigorous harvest management scheme. Your benefits, both in harvesting, extraction, and conservation benefits will be higher when you segregate the attributes on the property as opposed to trying to uniformly manage the property to uh, optimize both of those outcomes. Now, the same thing is true for, for agriculture, right? I don't think the answer is to uniformly practice regenerative agriculture on every acre. There's going to be acres that are going to be continued to be very extractive. Uh, They can be less extractive and they can be more in balance. But the goal is to take land out of production and return that to nature and rewild that land. We're going to get much greater conservation benefits and outcomes when we think about managing for nature and conservation benefits on the fringes, on the exterior, the uh, removal of land from production systems, developing biological corridors and, and, and um, buffer zones. They're going to be more impactful at scale when we do those practices than saying every acre must have pollinator strips, must have agroforestry, must have you know the perfect regenerative system. So I bring a little bit more of a realist isn't the proper word, but more of a awareness of the challenges of the transformation of our system that are needed to pull us forward. And I want, I want us to work on, 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 on incremental steps as opposed to rapid transformation. Yeah. And if I'm hearing you correctly, the tension that you face in your work is because of how far down this particular road we've gone and it, you don't stare that around overnight. Compromises have to be made. And sometimes we have to make interventions that the land, the species that live on it, the organisms might not necessarily want immediately. But if we do this, we'll move you towards something better because we can't change overnight and we can't do this everywhere right now. I mean, I was reading this this article about, I think it was Sri Lanka. They tried to go 
organic uh, incredibly rapidly and right before and then during the pandemic. And it fell into shambles for a bunch of different reasons, namely because the land has to go through its uh, drug addiction, you know, um, recovery process. And so, you know, these things won't happen overnight. And so we have to make sacrifices and sometimes we have to look at, okay, is this close to what nature would want in some way, even if it's imperfect. The question that you raise on optimization is also a really interesting one, because you're right, certain financial and management systems teach us to optimize energy and so on and so forth. And it's a very narrow definition of metrics that we optimize for. And ecosystems are a plurality of different life forms that together optimize for health. But if you only look at three or four metrics of ecosystem health and then you start to optimize for those, you begin to neglect the very nuanced, more subtle, less known and documented ones. And so I think also in, in what I'm hearing you describe, it's like, how can we not be wasteful with energy and how can we not lose time, but throw the idea of optimization a bit on, out of the window and add complexity to what it is we're trying to optimize and adding complexity isn't, okay, we'll just have a pollinator row everywhere and now it's complex. It's like, the landscape needs to be a lot more messy and 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 kind of convoluted and not convoluted, but um, multifaceted. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's, so let's unpack what you just said, which is basically do narrow sets of metrics, are they proxy enough for the complexity of the system that if you focus on a certain subset of metrics, will they have beneficial outcomes to the system? And I, I think you're right. The, it's not a straightforward answer. Uh, it won't always produce the desired outcomes. And frankly, it could produce the wrong outcomes. And we are absolutely seeing that play out live with the carbon conversation right now. Like, as we just drill on carbon, 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 we are losing total a holistic frame for all of the co-benefits associated with these transformations. And that's where you get into a lot of tension. And we, you know, our, our investment strategy is segregated between natural climate solutions uh, and basically abiotic, technical, and carbon removal type solutions. And we we debate that. We think it's an and, uh, and you need both. But the, the, the carbon lens and frame ignores so much of the importance of restoration, regeneration that comes with, with the intrinsic value of those systems. The definition in conservation, conservation finance, um, it, it really has changed because we have consistently applied a economic lens and framework, which assume, subsumes a, a, an extractive-based model, right? So what is the value of nature? That's an economic lens. It means what can we as humans extract from this? And then, okay, if we're being less extractive, we're being more sustainable, or we're only harvesting what can grow uh, and, and not more. And then regenerative is, you know, we're, we're harvesting less than what's growing, so that it keeps replenishing over time. But it's still, the basis is economic lens. It's extractive in its sense. It's saying, what is the value that I can create as a human interacting with this system? Now, the other side of that is the intrinsic value of nature, right? So it's, what is the value, the value of an entity that it has in and of itself, right? And so when you switch from that, the value of nature to the intrinsic value of nature, you start moving into this nature has a right to exist in and of itself because of the complexities and the beauty and the species and the functions that it provides, not for our benefit, for its own benefit. And 
it's going to be really tough for us to move into that frame in our current economic model. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that tension, and I'm sure you are too, with this you know, uh, rights of nature movement. It's as soon as you say that this species or this river has a right to exist and a right to the same rights that people and corporations have, how do you balance those two? Uh, things and that's that's I'm I'm excited to see that conversation play out live over the next few years. This is a fascinating part of the conversation, especially when it comes to investing in finance. In a way, capitalism is the substrate that guides most of the actions um, and structures that we see around ourselves today. And people have considered it akin to a form of religion, or it's just it, it is the dominant belief system that most people in the world, whether they want it or not, are enmeshed in it. It's kind of like the riverbed, like the the stone of the riverbed in which all water flows and gets carried and moves. And so the assumptions under which we're operating inside of this version of capitalism are imperfect in trying to transition us towards intrinsic right, intrinsic value, infinite complexity. And yet we need to go there somehow. And um, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. I have absolutely no answer for it, but I want to talk about it today. Even the language that is currently used, like how does this feel for you? You know, when you when you refer to a tree as biomass, when you say what we're going to extract from a forest, when you speak about a living, breathing, sentient ecosystem as a natural resource that provides you an ecosystem service. When you come up against that language that you have to use every day to be intelligible to different constituents in in your kind of work, how does that land in you? And are there ways that you have tried or experimented to to shift it and then people think you're like a daisy chain-making hippie? I I mean, I hope they do, and I hope that's always the case. Um, I think that it speaks to both of our dynamicism and and playing different roles. And I think that's, that's what we are as facilitators is being able to jump between these life worlds to um, speak to different groups and bridge them. That's, you know, how we became friends and, and, and how we think about the world is, is connecting dots. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to carry the, the thread a little bit, right? I think it's an ant. It's always going to be an ant. This concept of like commoditization of ecosystems based on a Web3 type approach of financially commoditizing every ecosystem service from the land so that it can be packaged up, derived in a financial market and has a set value that's, you know, traded on an exchange. Like there's, there's, there's space for that in the world, but the other half and which is again, pure conservation, my pure heart of heart, I more subscribe to EO Wilson in a way, which is half Earth. Now that's a case by case basis, and and you have to make those decisions with with you know private and public stakeholders and the communities that are on the ground managing those resources. But there's places that we can protect, that we should be protecting, and that should be not associated with any type of resource extraction because again the intrinsic value of that nature it should exist for its own self, and that my heart as an environmentalist, as an outdoorsman, as someone who has traveled, uh, like I am grounded in the natural world. I get vibrational coherence when I am in nature. I am happier, healthier, and more in sync with myself when I am in the wilds 
of the world around us. And I'm lost when I'm not. So, so that for me is why you protect nature is because I understand my relationship with it. And that, that only has happened recently. I always did it subconsciously, but now really understanding that I am who I am and I'm grounded in these systems as a result of my experiences and my love for them. So conservation and protection is essential. However, it's an and, and I do think that we need to borrow some of our best tools. You know, capitalism has many pitfalls, but it has lifted the world to a large degree out of poverty. And we need to apply some of those those tools to natural assets. And we need to apply frameworks for helping them to create value. Um, so let me tell you the, the other part of, of my journey that really brought me to this moment was um, I was in the Peace Corps, um, which is an American volunteer program. You, you live on the ground for, uh, in a developing country for two years working with local community. I think it's one of the, one of the best American programs we have, um, and, but it, it comes with its own sets of controversy. But we are trained to get into the community listen to the community, ask the community members what they want, what they need before even starting projects per se. And if you do that, it, you tend to be pretty successful because it's all about relationship building. Uh, but before I did that, I was, I worked at this lodge in Northwest Costa Rica called Laguna del Lagarto. And it was uh, on the Nicaraguan border and it was built by Germans in the seventies. It was rustic, kind of just deep, really ingrained in the heart of a beautiful, beautiful, pristine patch of wilderness. And um, part of the thrill was these burgers would come and they'd sit in these photography hides and and would just snap the most beautiful pictures of these, uh, you know, huge diversity of, of, of avians. And right at the lodge, there was a sign and it said uh, when I would take tourists into the jungle or photographers into set up the, in the hides, you'd pass the sign every day. And it said, basically, um, this forest is under the protection of or is enrolled in the payment for ecosystems program. And I saw this sign in, in 2010 and I'm sitting here uh, in 2012 as a result of seeing that sign. This this idea and and payment for ecosystem services, it has morphed into a lot of the things that we work in and think about today. And there's so many different models and practices. But the origins of it were, you know, Costa Rica had experienced rapid deforestation in the 60s, uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And in order to reverse that trend, they said they codified into law that the nature uh, has a value in and of itself. It it, it it captures carbon. It uh, provides us with water. It has scenic beauty. It harbors species diversity. Um, all of these reasons, they codified that into law, and they created a mechanism to pay landowners to keep their forests intact and also to reforest. And so the National Fund for Financing Forestry, that mechanism, they were in charge of managing and implementing it on behalf of the government. It was quasi-public-private at the time. They reversed the trend of deforestation because they created a value for nature. Now, it was interesting to see while I was there, 2013 to 15, um, I ended up working for that organization. You could still see that the prices weren't high enough. There was still a large amount of cattle and cattle-driven deforestation where the value of the meat and the cattle was still greater than the value of protecting the forest. 
and you could see that play out in certain properties. And, and so it was interesting dynamic because it was just the government asking itself, do we pay more? How do we, we uh, fix this imbalance between these values? Because we know the natural values are greater than, you know, this extract, this beef driven deforestation model in Costa Rica. And that, what I saw in 2012 is when I was there with Bonafifo. And then 10 years later, uh, that tension is still playing out. We still cannot create enough value through these commoditized ecosystem services to say this is worth more for protecting it than it is for extracting. And until policy comes in to say, you know, we're fixing price floors or, you know, regulating it, I don't know that we're going to get there. And that has to do with what's the price of carbon. That has to do with what's the price of water. Um, <laughs> luckily, Mother Na- I mean, Nature might make that decision rather quickly for us because uh, the speed at which things are changing. So you shared a lot there. Um, thank you for sharing your own personal relationship also to nature and this restoration or regeneration that you feel and use this beautiful phrase, vibrational coherence that you get. As you were speaking, I was thinking about... Well, there's an initiative I'm involved in, which is trying to measure and understand biodiversity a lot more fully through ecological lenses and so that we can try and understand the value more of, of everything that's present and being lost and, and expressing itself. So in a way, new information into the financial system coming from the science, coming from the ground truth thing, coming from close observations, will be able to update our models, our financial models, evaluation to the point where hopefully there is some vibrational coherence between what something is worth when literally extracted and when it's worth alive and standing and and generating all these other co-benefits for its presence. So what's the role of finance and specifically the kind of investment that you're doing, um, both on the venture side and the philanthropic side, what's the role of finance in advancing our knowledge of ecosystems, advancing our knowledge of nature? and getting us to a place where the good and sane and wise option for an ecosystem is the one for humans, because currently that's not the case. In a large part, obviously, that's a massive generalization. That is, that is the crux of, of systems change. I mean, is reorienting uh, financial decision-making to be more holistic in the way that it allocates resources. And that's what finance is, right? It's an allocation of resources. And right now, our frameworks, methodologies, tools around finance are optimized for extraction, uh, for the rate of return that can be generated as a result of an investment at time zero. And that time zero to time one subsumes, again, some rate of income as a result of extraction. And so to retool those decisions, like you said, we need better information. That's one. But you also need to change the rules in which that way that that information is accounted for. I mean, there's a fantastic example that just happened this past week. Um, So the task force for climate-related disclosure has been working for about, um, let's call it more than five years, to basically build communication models or, or measurement systems for how companies should disclose on their climate impact and risk, right? And so they standardized 
a new set of information that allows the investment community to incorporate that information into their decision making. And the big thing that happened was the SEC, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission of the U.S., basically codified that you must use those metrics in your financial decision making. I mean, that is unbelievable. I, it, in, in the speed at which that happened, 10 years time, it doesn't seem fast, but it, it really is. And it's really exciting uh, because now it means that the corporations have to disclose not only the risk that they faced as a result of a changing climate, but how they're mitigating that risk by reducing their scope one, scope two emissions, by investing in resiliency, by uh, sourcing the different ways, producing in different ways. So it really changes the basis for the allocation of resources. That is transformational. Now to get where you want to go, which is the next level, which is again, moving beyond carbon and, and, and being more holistic, we do have to standardize metrics in a way that allows that information to be incorporated into decision-making. Um, and I think you're at the forefront of that. I think you're starting to ask the really tough questions. And I think there's a lot of momentum for that to happen, um, both on a startup side, both on a public company uh, disclosure side. So it's it's exciting. The one thing that just makes me nervous is, uh, you know, and I just it's just been so much greenwashing by these corporations for the past, well, since forever. And you know, I, I started my career in forestry and global forest ecosystems and watching all these commitments around zero deforestation, you know, it, it just really doesn't feel like it's amounted to much in the end. And so I, I, I wish I could be more bullish that the biodiversity conversation plays out a little differently. But I don't know, at the end of the day, these corporations and you see what happens to companies like Danone that are trying to do the right thing and and, and then you get into the weeds of what's actually happening behind the scenes of that company. And you're like, oof, this doesn't really instill as much optimism as one would like. And so I th- still think we need to be our renegade, <laughs> uh, passionate, liberal environmentalists who, you know, are saying, no, I'm going to stop supporting these companies because they're not doing it. How do you think that venture capital as an industry needs to shift in terms of its frameworks and architecture to be accommodating to the things we're talking about in this conversation? I personally believe that entrepreneurial activity and venture capital are the lifeblood of our economy. And and from family businesses to uh, the reason these tech companies exist today, it's because of foundational values around freedom and liberty and, and your ability to go make the dream happen. Like, that is beautiful. Um, I think where the uh, startup ecosystem reorients itself. It's about us. It's about the next generation coming into itself and saying, what do I want to build? What are we going to build together that enables balance with nature, with ecosystems that is not extractive? So I think there's a wholesale reorientation as a result of knowledge around the degradation of our biosphere and our relationship to the world around us that's causing an explosion in venture and climate tech to seek solutions, create solutions, uh, seek venture capital funding. To answer, to go back to your question, which is how do we ensure or allow those companies, startups, entrepreneurs to be better and more authentic 
and more tangible with their impact around them? I, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. I think it's part of the educational journey. It's part of having the conversations. I think podcasts, I think community groups, I think having tough conversations with people and saying, what are you what are you actually doing? Are you actually having the impact that you're intending? Are, and I mean, we both see it every day. People sell visions to us and we know that we can feel when it's inauthentic. Uh, and again, is that intuition or is that diligence? You know, we have, at a certain point of investing and looking at things, you're going to feel your gut and you're like, okay, this is an authentic team. They're, they're actually not just spewing this mission-related BS. They believe it. They, we, they, we are mission aligned because this group is, they're creating this company to make the world a better place. And so I, I'm optimistic as a result of generational shift, uh, global awareness. Uh, but will there always be charlatans and kind of people that you should, you know, steer clear of? Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's something in in the architecture of venture that is unbiological in its timeframes, in the way that it extracts from founders themselves. I'm sure you've experienced that in the ways that uh, term sheets are written. And I think it's incredibly ironic sometimes that the industry or one of the industries that's claiming to and holds a lot of potential to uh, reorient the world's challenges is itself implicated in a lot of the dynamics that are disruptive. Wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, it is... It is only the right model for certain situations where it's a lot of capital. When you pour gasoline on a fire, uh, it consumes a lot of energy. And you need things that can go quick and consume that energy and have a place to redirect it, right? Um, so... I, th I just think it's it's really appropriate for some type of businesses and not appropriate for other type of businesses. But because it's the de facto model that we have today, it's just been adopted full full stop as being the right model. Is there an example from investments that you've made where it was the perfect model and maybe another investment you've made where you're like, huh, this could have taken another form, but it's under this umbrella now? Yeah. Um, let's look at a company called Hazel Technologies. You know, they make a, a little sachet that looks like a sugar packet, and it has uh, a chemical formulation inside that is uh, it's a methyl ethylene inhibitor that prevents the decay of fruit and vegetables. So when a fruit piece of fruit is decaying, uh, the chemistry is sending signals that I'm going to decay, and it gets hit with this chemical uh, back at it and say, don't decay, or slow down your process of decay. And... It's incredibly cheap to produce. It's incredibly available. Uh, the team can go really fast and build a company. And they can distribute that sachet globally in a way that allows them to prevent the degradation of millions and billions and billions and billions of pounds of food. So that is something that can take a lot of capital. It can go fast. It can find the right market with the right team and the right business. They, that can be transformative. Absolutely. This other example I'm going to choose not to use a name towards, but we'll talk about it in concepts. Um, they have figured out a way to uh, rapidly, rapidly regenerate soils through a combination of 
a mineral microbe nutrition formula that's applied to the soil that involves, uh, again, some coal, rock dust, uh, microbes. That soil amendment plus uh, a change in management practices, they can achieve, let's say, in a rotational grazing type system with that amendment, you can pull down 30 tons of carbon per hectare easily. And that's, again, because of the nature of grasses and and how they work and and moving in a um, regenerative grazing type way uh, allows for rapid, rapid regeneration because of the recycling of nutrients. Um, That business model is fantastic. So if you underwrite that to carbon, you're like, wow, like, look at this. We could do this all day. And the result is it is incredibly difficult to scale. It is labor intensive. There's just a lot of reasons that say, Dumping venture capital money all over this thing is not going to help it go fast. And you're funding a business that's that takes time to uh, accumulate customers and revenue and, and contracts. And so I, I actually think a lot of our regen ag business models that are being pursued by venture capital are going to find they're not going to work really well. What kind of financing would you give that operation? I would look to our uh, portfolio company, Steward, right? So you could use debt financing to basically set up the operation and invest in those soils. And then your uh, expectation is that they're going to sell you know, a higher quality beef as a result from that property uh, and maybe some carbon credits. And, and you can sell that. That beef will have kind of a two to three-year timeline, and you can use credit with a three- to five-year timeline and, and kind of have an on-flowing cash cycle there that, 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 that pays for itself. So, um, yeah, I don't think we use debt enough. Debt isn't sexy. Debt isn't transformative. It doesn't feel that way. But uh, for many of our regen ag investments, debt is going to be because it's about transformation. Transformation takes time, and debt has a certain level of structure and term and patience around it that allows very clear ex- expectations and a very clear contract. And when you underwrite that debt, you're looking at the potential return from that from that property that's being managed in that way. And so you can understand because you can forecast those cash flows that allow you to say, will they be able to service this debt? It's all pretty con- contextual in terms of what, what, what's the right tool for, for the transformation? Where are the most interesting conversations happening in this space right now? I'm not talking the climate tech space. I'm talking about people who are thinking deeply about the nature of deep ecology and ecosystems and how we use finance on behalf of nature. Like where, where do investors go when they hear this? They're like, wow, I want to be a part of this movement. I want to learn more. I want to understand. I want to be part of a learning group. Like, where do those conversations happen in your experience? Yeah, I, I think one, I would turn to you <laughs> for that question and ask where where are these conversations happening? Because I wish they were more happening. Um, I, I would say where I've seen them happen the most is is in, in literature. A, a book will kind of explode or gain fast notoriety that will really cause a lot of people to shift their thinking. Um, and, and the one that I would, reference and leads to another, you know, touch point in our relationship is The Entangled Wet, Merlin Sheldrake. Um, that book really, so he's such a beautiful writer and really transformed my way of seeing the ground beneath our feet. And that 
has really catalyzed, I'd say, thrown energy on a, a fire of mycelium uh, mushroom, uh, the, the, the trend that's happening right now, all the way from food to, to plant-based medicine to restoration, remediation through all of these fungal pathways. I think that that's where a lot, to answer your question, I think there's a lot of energy around that space right now that's coalescing in different places. And so I'd say it, it maybe it's not happening at, a, at like a, the, across the themes that you mentioned, it's more happening within certain touch points. And obviously one of those touch points that, you know, I would regret not bringing up because it's one of our favorite things is, is SPUN. Um, SPUN is the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. And it's about really bringing, uh, protecting and harnessing the fungal networks that regulate uh, our climate and our ecosystems. As you begin, and I went on this regen ag journey, you really start to understand the importance of mycelium networks and the amount of carbon that's being pumped through them and the amount of nutrients that are being transferred through them back to the plants. And so uh, I'm just obsessed with it, love it. I'm so excited to see it take off. And and I think that's a great touch point to say the deep ecology, the investment community, these disparate groups are coming together around a concept that says – we need to protect this, but if we're smart, we can also harness this in a way that regenerates our soils, regenerates our health, regenerates our, you know, our um, mind and body. So I'm uh, really, really excited about that. Yeah, that's a beautiful example. And it leads to a really critical point that I um, don't think it's raised enough in the investment industry. If you're really serious about regenerating ecosystems, if you're really serious about looking at the ocean's forests, landscapes, agricultural plains. And if you're only doing that through for-profit capital, if you're only trying to invest in either public equities or some debt instruments or private companies, then you're talking half a game. And I'm sorry, that might sound very harsh, but so much of what needs to be done is basic science. So much of what needs to be done is basic technical assistance on the ground, capacity building and teams There are so many amazing initiatives all over the world inside of communities and ecosystems, and they need support. And and that cannot always come with a financial return. And so if it's within your financial scope to some form of capital that doesn't require any return directly to you, but that is building up a field that could or could not attract further investment, sometimes you've just got to fund the thing without even thinking it's going to generate money down the line. And so I think there's a lot of talk in, in venture and otherwise of, uh, yeah, we want to do good and you can make money and do good at the same time. And, and yes, of course. But I don't think there's enough conversation on how people are using all forms of their capital and giving up a little bit in order to truly walk the talk fully. And that's something that I do feel quite strongly about. And I know it can make people uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think we have to say, and I think... I think we're both very good at saying the uncomfortable things and they need to be said more often. We need to explore alternative models, right? It goes back to, you know, Milton Friedman saying, maximize your personal wealth and, and then you get to decide what you, what you do with that wealth and you get to be a philanthropist and give that away. But I think if we take a different tact, as you say, which is if we grow these organizations and the science along with us while we're creating this wealth, we will grow together. And it'll be mutually beneficial. And that, you know, as something as simple as having non-for-profits on your cap table 
or ensuring a percentage of your revenue goes to some mission or some organization, being a public benefit corporation and, and allocating resource, having the discretion and control to allocate resources differently, that that's happening. I mean, it, it is, but can we take that a step further? And we absolutely can. And I think we should push on that. I think we should pull on that lever a little bit more. Absolutely. And I don't think we'll get into it in the scope of this conversation, but just in general, wealth and land redistribution, we're not going to get to a place worth going to if that isn't fundamentally addressed. And that's not necessarily the job of venture capital, and it's not necessarily the job of certain types of investments. But those who are doing those things, if they're not also taking a good hard look at that aspect of of their lives, um, I think are uh, missing out a really critical piece. Before we wrap, was there anything that you felt that you wanted to share or talk about today that I haven't asked you about? Actually, that thread that you were just pulling on. As you know, I'm working on my next project. And part of where that project is focused is returning power uh, back to producers and consumers throughout the food system. And just like we treat our agriculture system, we treat, we are extractive from our producers. Uh, it's a commodity-based system. We extract as much as possible. They have very little power. Um, and so if you want to get back to, you know, improving the land, improving uh, land tenure rights and all these things, you have to return wealth back to those producers because those producers are going to invest in the land. They're going to invest in themselves. They're going, they know the land better than anyone. They're the reason we're alive. And as you think about all the places in the food system, that, that supply chain that capture additional margin and you see a higher price at the end of the day, <laughs> None of that margin increase is going back to that producer. It's only getting more and more expensive and harder to be a producer. And so for me, if you, if you want to flip this model on its head and regenerate the land, we have to return the wealth back to the producers. And so, yeah, stay tuned for the next project because I think we're, we're both pretty excited about how we uh, empower those, those groups. Eric, thank you so much. The first in-person interview delivered. <laughs> Thank you, Alexa. It's been an absolute pleasure being here with you and, and, and so grateful for our friendship. And um, I can't wait to hear all the interesting guests that you've been talking about. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And do stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks' time, where we'll be learning all about Indigenous ceremonies, protocols, and how to carve totem poles. As always, I'd love to hear from you, so please do reach out to me on the website lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to finance to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon.